The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 143. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Voyager episode, The Scorpion. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Please, we ask you if you could share this podcast with your Trekkie friends. Let them know about it. We want to keep growing this community of listeners. It's growing well. And every time, it, you know, as it grows, it gets better because we get this awesome feedback and relationship with you, the listener. So. We love to see the the increased number of downloads, which means there's more and more of you listening, and welcome. Uh, that I want to say that as well. So we're talking about uh, Scorpion. As I've mentioned before in the last few episodes, we're, we've, we're mixing things up a little bit. We're still going through each series one by one, you know, in a round-robin fashion. Last time we talked about Deep Space Nine. Now we're talking Voyager. But we're going to go back and forth between first season and middle of the, of the t- TV series run about for most of the uh, series. Some of them were not going to do that, but partly because so many first seasons were not as great, <laughs> we realized we're going to spend a yep. lot of time talking about episodes that aren't as great. So we want to kind of mix it up a bit. And we know that our our, our, our episode rants are, are pretty uh, entertaining, but they're really not entertaining for us because we have to watch these episodes. <laughs> right, right. So for this one, we've jumped ahead to the end of season three, the season finale. And the reason for that is because it's kind of a two-parter with the season four uh, first episode. Although basically we're getting, we're getting, this is the setup for Kess's departure and seven of nine's arrival. Yep. Right. This is the big, if you look at Voyager, where's the big switcher switcheroo and things, this is where Turning it happens. Point. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is, uh, We'll have this one, and then next time we'll talk about the season four, episode one. Uh, This episode is, just to give you a a quick recap, Voyager's now on the edge of Borg space, which encompasses thousands of uh, star systems, apparently. Um, Mm -hmm. And they encounter species 8472, which is apparently more powerful than the Borg, and is bent on destroying all life in the the galaxy, uh, a la the Daleks of Doctor Who. Which means that uh, Janeway has to enter into an alliance with the Borg eventually in order to defeat 8472 and get through safely. So that's that's the recap. So before we get into it, I had a couple of thoughts. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them was sort of on a macro level, and one of them was much smaller. So on the macro level, as I was thinking about Voyager as a series, they really should have lifted more from the Odyssey. Because that's what yep. they're doing. This is mm-hmm. this is essentially an outer space retelling of the Odyssey, right. and I think they should have 
looked to the Odyssey for more inspiration for stories and ongoing plot lines and things like that, I think it would have improved the series because especially in their first few seasons, they were pretty much flailing about. Mm -hmm. Um, In all of the 1980s, 90s Star Trek franchises, the first few seasons are nowhere near as good as where they end up. And a lot of that is because of lack of planning. Right. And right. and lack of an overall coherent story. And so if they had said, okay, well, look, we're doing the Odyssey, that that could have helped drive the series forward from the beginning in a way it didn't. Because what they were thinking more seems to have been, we're doing Lost in Space, <laughs> which was an episodic TV series with no continuing story from one episode to the next. And yeah. also was for sort of for children. Mm-hmm. So that was my macro thought. Should have taken right. more inspiration from the Odyssey. My micro thought is Janeway's briefing room table really looks like something you'd find in a casino. It's got this <laughs> long central yeah. zone that terminates in a circle. I mean, you just want to throw dice down that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's supposed to be stylized off Voyager, but it doesn't quite work. Uh, you know, it's interesting, though, you mentioned kind of, you know, having the longer story arc, like all of the Odyssey. And, of course, this is about the time that Babylon 5 is finishing up to the point of it's finished. Uh, this idea of telling the long-form story in a series is mm-hmm. starting to become more popular when Voyager and, is airing. And DS9 has just finished doing that as well. Yeah. And so it, it's it's interesting that those thoughts are out there, but they really didn't come in time for the start of Voyager. Um and I, I think you could argue there is some evidence that they were trying to do that towards the end. But, of course, it was little, yeah. too little too late at that point, and they really couldn't do much with what they had already put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it, it is interesting to kind of, that this is kind of that transition between the more episodic formula and then, you know, of course, uh, Battlestar Galactica is shortly after Voyager ends and, and, or around the time Voyager ends and things like that where there were much, was much more movement in TV towards the longer story arcs, the se- the right. series long story arcs, the season long story arcs, and so on. But even even then, even if they hadn't wanted to go full, you know, soap opera, mm-hmm. and I understand that they didn't at this period in TV history, because a lot of the audience was not yet used to truly, epi- you know, truly long form stories. Right there, there were there were balances they could strike, and they could at least say, hey. Odysseus encountered all these islands, you know, mm-hmm. where these things were going on. We should we should mine those for plots. Yeah. Even if we're not going to have an overall connected story, we could at least base our episodes on some interesting episodes from the Odyssey. Yeah. A little that's Skillet assu- and Charybdis, a little Cyclops, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that, that's assuming that, you know, the producers were actually knowledgeable in things <laughs> like the Odyssey, which that, that might be a stretch, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> It would be like, for example, one of the reasons Odysseus took so long to get back to Ithaca was that he killed the Cyclops mm-hmm. and because, in self-defense because the Cyclops was going to eat him and his men. So yep. they killed the Cyclops. Well, it turns out the Cyclops is the son of the god Neptune. So now they've got Neptune honked off at him and Neptune yep. is going to do his best to keep them from getting back to Ithaca. Uh, you know, so, OK, they've accidentally killed Janeway has accidentally killed the caretaker's son. Mm-hmm. And now the the rogue mother caretaker is trying to stop them or something. Yeah. That would be interesting to have a, a a an overarching villain of this sort who impedes their progress. You know, it's not necessarily a 
a, an existential threat, but is an, an impediment to their progress. That would be well, an interesting. I think they tried to do that at the Kazon, and they realized this ain't working. No, not <laughs> they got rid of them real yeah. quick. Kazon the Kazon were the fun with the Ferengi of Voyager. Yeah, I mean, I think I honestly think that they had initially thought that these were going to be the Delta Quadrant villains until they got to the Borg, and it just didn't work. And they were like, "Nope, we're done with them." Well, speaking it, of, it, it, it's okay. interesting that the the Kazon are like meant to, you know, visibly be like Klingons. Yeah, only. They've got just Bad a hair. ridiculous Bad hair. hair. <laughs> Bad um, hair days. And, and the, the Ferengi were also meant to be the replacement for the Klingon. So yeah. they ha- we have, with both Next Gen and Voyager, we have attempts to capture the Klingon magic again that spectacularly fail. Yep. Yes. Exactly. Yes. You'd say with DS9, the Cardassians, they kind of succeeded. I think the Cardassians did turn out to be a good villain uh, mm-hmm. race. Uh, so that, I'd say that with them. Well, no. For some of DS9, the Klingons ended up being a good Klingon. So, <laughs> well, yes, I know, as we just <laughs> talked about. So, let's. But you mentioned the Borg. It's interesting. This is the beginning where of them bringing the Borg into the show in a big way, where they weren't. Right. They we they'd encountered them before, but not now. They will be a regular part of it, especially since uh, Seven or Nine is now going to become a crew member uh, coming up. And it's the, part of that was because of the success of Star Trek First Contact, the movie right. that had come out. And they're like, you know what? We really ought to be bringing the Borg in. They're, the, the audience likes them, and th- that'll be a way to kind of revive the show. Uh, and, and, and so that was part of that. Including kind grabbing like the Queen the, from yeah. First Contact. Yeah. Yep. Kind of like also they brought the Klingons into Deep Space Nine to give it a ratings boost. Exactly. Exactly. We just talked about that. Uh, on the other hand, this is when they decided to get rid of Cass in favor of Seven of Nine. So this is Jennifer Lean's, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Yeah. It's her last episode as a regular cast member. She'll come back later as angry Cass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll encounter, yeah. but. She'll also be back at the beginning of the next season. Just right. to say goodbye, in essence. But yeah. Right. These two episodes. Yeah. The, you know, they're speaking of the Borg. Now, I have two. Voyager plots that I came up with, at least one of them, I came up with while Voyager was on the air, and I actually thought about pitching it, because mm-hmm. they were open for outside pitches on, on Star Trek, unlike a lot of things. And it's actually a good story, and someone I told it to remembered it in detail hmm. from back when I told it to him in the 1990s, and recently sent me all the details, and it's like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that part. Sometime I'll have to tell you the story of tomorrow's Enterprise. Okay. And the Borg are involved in that. But I, I also had a memory of a Voyager episode that appears not to exist. <laughs> and so I came up somehow with a second Voyager plot, in, unless I've just missed it, because I've been looking for this, and I Mandela have not found effect. it. Well, <laughs> it could be the Mandela effect. But the, the premise was you have a group of ex-Borg, and I know we do have an ex-Borg episode, but yep. what happens mm-hmm. in this one is you've got a group of ex-Borg who have been freed. One of them has become obsessed with, like, Seven of Nine because she assimilated him or something, mm. and he wants her to, now that he's liberated also, he wants her to experience the terror that he had to go through upon being assimilated. And so he, and he's, he, he's willing to pay any price for that, 
he's even willing to be reassimilated himself as long as he can get her reassimilated mm. as a conscious adult and not just as a little kid who doesn't understand what's going on. And and he engineers a situation where he's got him and Seven of Nine and the Borg are coming to assimilate them. And at the last minute, Seven of Nine gets beamed out and he's left to be assimilated by himself. Ooh. And I think there's some powerful psychology in there that mm. you could develop an interesting obsession plot line with. Yeah. And I thought it was a real episode, but apparently it's not. Yeah, I, don't I don't know if I that, dreamed but... that plot line or what. It's it's it vaguely reminds me of the the story behind oh, what were the the bored kids that they get later. Yeah, um, Echeb and all that. Echeb and how Echeb was a sacrifice to the Borg, and so it's mm-hmm. kind of a little bit like that. Um, yeah, and then the people who sacrificed him to the Borg eventually ended themselves suffering uh, the uh, karmic <laughs> retribution in a sense mm-hmm. for it. So it's a little bit like that. No, and, but that's and, it. And, and- yeah, and and we have karmic retribution going on here, but in a somewhat different context. Yes, I I, I like it. It's that would be maybe even a good novel. Yeah. Uh, so all right, so let's talk about this one. The title of the episode is Scorpion, and at part of it, the the title might be just because the eight four seven species eight four seven two look vaguely scorpion in insect like, although more praying mantis oh. than anything. Well, and it's um, also the the whole parable the, of the but it's scorpion the parable. and the fox. Yeah, to, I think the eight four seven two looks goofier. Yes. than anything. It, it it biologically very implausible. So the uh, the parable is originally the scorpion and the frog, although inexplicably mm-hmm. yeah. they change it. Chakotay tells the scorpion and the fox. I don't understand why, like what, what aesthetic or other reason you would change it? And it? Well, it's like in the Good Samaritan episode where they have to refer to the story of the Good Samaritan. Just call it the parable. You <laughs> call this a parable. Everybody knows it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Nobody knows it is the story of the Good Samaritan. Call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why right. the stupid change? And this is the parable of the of the scorpion and the frog. It, why yeah. change it to a fox? Maybe there weren't frogs sense. on the uh, the Native American planet. I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah, but there were foxes and scorpions. Scorpions. Uh, so anyway, we started with the episode with. Uh, okay, now for people who may not be familiar. Oh, okay, the story goes: a scorpion wants to cross a river and gets uh, get, finds a frog who can take him across the river. Says, "Please take me across the river." The frog says, no, 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 you'll sting me if I do that, and we'll both drown. But he convinces him, well, no, I won't, because then we'd both drown. So the frog agrees to take him across. In the middle of the river, the scorpion stings him anyway. Why? Because I'm a scorpion. It's my nature. Yep. So yes. the, the parable applied to us is you can't trust the Borg. Right. Because it's they're going to do what their nature tells them to do. Right. So... uh the episode starts with basically one of the shortest teasers in Star Trek Voyager, where you see mm-hmm. these two cubes. They're approaching some target that we don't see. It's from our from that target's point of view. You will be assimilated, and the target essentially, although not audibly, says no, no, we won't, and just shoots the cubes and they explode. And so we get this sense of there's something that's strong enough to single shot kill two cubes. Okay, and this is the first time we've ever had more than one cube on the screen at a time. Mm-hmm. Not even at Wolf three five nine was that one cube? Mm, that one was just cube. one cube. One cube that took it all of Starfleet. Wow. Yep. Uh, all right. So uh, then we have Janeway on the holodeck with Leonardo da Vinci, played by John Rhys Davies, who Gimli. Yeah, Gimli apparent- is Leonardo. Gimli. 
and also Sala from Rage of the Lost Ark. And uh, he was apparently a Star Trek fan, and he was offered the part without an audition, of course. And, and he leapt at it. And it was it was Jade, it was apparently it was Kate Mulgrew's idea to have a holographic Leonardo da Vinci to be a confidant for Janeway. I thought that, I think mm-hmm. that's interesting. He'll show up again in uh, mm-hmm. at least one more yeah. episode. Oh, several more episodes. I wish yeah. he would show up even more than that. I would have loved to have him as, as a regular. Yes, that would have been cool. Yeah, I li- I like this the interaction. And one of the things that that I read about when I was uh, looking at this episode is that both Kate Mulgrew and the writers both agreed that the end of the third season was when Janeway finally became the captain they had wanted her to be. She's a little more freewheeling, a little more risk-taking, and she's a lot more, in personality, like Kate Mulgrew. So mm-hmm. Mulgrew kind of had grown into the part, in the sense. Also, Mulgrew is a practicing Catholic, and you can yeah. see how she enjoys the scenes with Leonardo because he's an Italian Catholic in in Italy and they don't have to be antiseptic Starfleet dancing around religion ignoring it and pretending <laughs> it it, do, it doesn't exist. She right. gets to talk to Leonardo about cardinals and monasteries and abbots and praying in chapels and all kinds of stuff. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Very nice. It yeah, if you ever want to see Kate Mulgrew, um she uh, played St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in a uh, in a movie which was very nice, which they play at the shrine. You can actually see parts of it in their presentation at the shrine. So it's kind of cool. So uh, I do want to mention about Species 8472. Uh, you mentioned, Jimmy, I, I have a note here. I wanted, don't want to forget to talk about it. Uh, the design, it was to be seen in glimpses and shadows and not very often, partly to keep the suspense, but also because the CGI was not great. So no. <laughs> I, I, I did have a note for that. Well, it, this again. It, it, speaking of transition period, this is where they're transitioning from models to more computer CGI, and you can tell, right? Yeah, and I can forgive special effects that you know are have technological limitations. I mean, I watched classic Doctor Who, so of course mm-hmm. I yes. can forgive that kind yeah. of thing. But I don't like the design for Species Eight Four Seven Two. They're meant to have three legs. And they don't really pull it off because if you want to do three legs, you need to have radial body symmetry. Mm. And they don't. They have bilateral body symmetry. And three legs looks ridiculous Yeah, if you have bilateral body symmetry but three legs. Also, their heads look menacing now, or are meant to look menacing. Now, apparently, Ron Moore steered them away from having big teeth, which was sort of the original plan. Because mm-hmm. Big Teeth says this thing's a physical threat, but does not communicate this is an intellectual threat. Mm. And so they they went the other way of these things have almost no mouth and much bigger eyes and a much bigger brain case. And, okay, that's fine if you want to signalize this thing is smart. But the problem is you don't want it to make its head look like it's partially melted marzipan that's (laughs) banana-flavored and yellow-colored. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So let's talk about the the, the hollow program, so now that I I remember to get those things out of the way. So she's Janeway is there in uniform, not costume, which I think is an interesting cue that she's not not playing in a hollow novel. She's doing Mm -hmm. something a little different with, with Leonardo, and she's asking to work in his workshop with him, and he's he he's kind of putting her off. No, no, I work alone, and she so she needs to convince him that he, she would be an, an an asset to his his work. Uh, he also demonstrates a robotic clockwork arm, which I think is fun. The arm of Hephaestus, 
which is mm-hmm. which is really neat and kind of looks forward to the day in which uh, ro- uh manufacturing robots would be possible like in the 20th well, century and the irony is that that Hephaestus really did in Greek mythology did make robots mm. right that's that's what Pandora is she's a robotic woman that Hephaestus mm. made that's right that's right um so then uh, so there's some nice interaction as you mentioned Jimmy and there's some good some good dialogue but uh, she's called away uh, to the bridge and a one of their long range probes has been intercepted by the Borg because they're entering Borg space and so they they notice so they know that the Borg know that they're they're there somewhere and they're coming and that that concerns them so they they have determined that there's this area of Borg space that they're calling the Northwest Passage that's mm-hmm. devoid of any Borg activity. And so they're going to try to fly through that. And, and it's devoid of Borg activity because there is a bunch of gravitic and spatial anomalies there. So the Borg are, Borg are giving it a wide berth. Right. It, Which it, is completely implausible. They would figure right. something out. Yeah. And it's also, it, it's just sort of, it's the 2D in mental thinking about space that they that Star Trek in this era especially is prone to. Let's go above the galactic plane for a few years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they have a, a. I like the briefing. They kind of go through like, okay, weapons, sensors, medical, you know, medic, medical defense, logistics and supply. You know, it kind of goes through everybody. How are we going to, you know, spend this time in Borg space? Which I'm not sure how long they plan. They think it's going to take. This is essentially the rest of the series. So four more seasons. I guess is that that's the idea because at the end of the seventh season they have they use a transwarp conduit to get home, but they're still in Borg space. Yeah. So, um, which is interesting. It's a Borg transwarp conduit, right? Yep. So it's interesting to consider that how much of the Delta Quadrant is Borg, which which does make sense because of course the Borg have been around for a very long time and have been assimilating species for a very long time, so it makes sense they've spread out to that level. Yeah. Uh, the frankly, real answer is the writers didn't know how long they were going to be in Borg space. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, uh, meanwhile, Cass in the, is with the doctor, and she has this telepathic vision of oh, this oh, really b- creepy. But before that, oh, we okay. have the do- her and the doctor talking about how Borg assimilation works now that we've decided how it works. And yep. it involves you get stuck with these tubules, which can go through any force field or substance known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, right. And uh, how about <laughs> two inches of steel plating? Will they go through that? You know, <laughs> how four, four inches? Yes. And I'm pretty sure we could come up with something these things can't go through. But they inject you with nanoprobes, as he calls them, and then they the first thing they take over is your red blood cells mm-hmm. that... All they do is deliver oxygen and nutrients to your other cells. Yeah. They're not command and control. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you take those things over? Who cares what the red blood cells are doing? I mean, maybe after maybe you've f- taken over the brain, you want to you want to replace the red blood cells with another technological neutrifying system. Maybe the you know, blood so cells do- provide fuel for the new probes that it's going to manufacture. They don't yeah, my, say my that. head can was it, it, my my head can was blood cells go through the body, you know, what every minute or whatever it is, so it, it yeah. gets the probes yeah. to where they need to go. But, but guess, that's total head cannon. It's just it sounds good by me, you know, have the, the picture of the red blood cells turning gray. 
Yeah. yeah, well, once you're into the blood vessels, you can pilot your nanoprobe self wherever you want. You don't need to piggyback on a blood cell. Yeah. So that this is kind of dumb. But then, it, yes, yeah. Kes, Kes gets a vision of of uh, from H.R. Geiger of a bunch <laughs> of disassembled Borg. Yes, piled up in a big, gross pile. And uh, also, she senses the destruction of Voyager. So it's which a, a premonition. We, which we're only told. So, okay. Yep. I, if if you're wanting to show us the imminent, you, you know, you're giving us the Cassandra warning here. We're going to have something that kills Borg. Oh, and we're going to get destroyed too. We want to see us getting destroyed too. That's yeah. kind of more important than the pile of dead Borg. Yeah. And and we're not we we don't see her vision of that. We're just told she had one after the fact. It was too expensive to, to blow up the model. <laughs> <laughs> they or managed something. they yeah. managed to do it on Babylon Five in the first season. Yes, yes. Yep. Uh, so then there's red alert because uh, a a armada of fifteen Borg cubes. Now that's just not just two anymore. Now there's fifteen on screen at once that come flying by Voyager and pretty much ignore it, except for one stops to scan and then goes, yeah. uh, which is kind of creepy. Why, where well, are they do, going? They, they, are able, they are able to knock, knock, it, you know, knock it away like a fly, you know, just kind of right. bumps Voyager out of the way. But other than that... In the turbulence, yeah. Voyager would have pretty handily been uh, assimilated if they had uh, decided to, to stop. Yeah. Yeah. We have a surprisingly tender moment between Chakotay and Janeway in her ready room as she ponders not, whether we should a, retreat. Not in the romantic sense. No, no, no. no, no. Um, uh, in a yeah. friend sense, yes. Yeah. Yep. And so they've got to decide. She says, we've all known this day was coming, that we're going to hit Borg space, and we're going to have to decide, do we go through it and risk assimilation, or do we try to find a nice planet in the Delta Quadrant and live out the rest of our lives here? Yeah. And she's talking it over with Chakotay, and it's a really nice kind of complex friendship scene. Mm hmm And I like this a lot. I like the acting from Kate Mulgrew. Mm hmm Even Robert Beltran was motivated to actually care about his <laughs> acting in this episode. <laughs> he, he, he later checked out totally on the series. He, he felt he like, funny. well, they're not giving me anything good to work with, so why should I do more than phone it in? Right. Wow. <laughs> but here he's actually still caring about the scene, and so that's nice. I find it a little implausible in that he's like, well, I'll support whatever you do. Why don't you think about it, and we'll announce it to the crew in the morning. And it's like, okay, this is a major decision. Mm -hmm. I think it needs a little more exploration than one person thinking about it overnight. Right. Um, I think we need to, at a minimum, pull the senior officers yeah. and get their input on the pros and cons of all this. Yes. Yeah, just sleep on it. <laughs> sleep on it. That's literally yeah, what he says. Just sleep on it. Right. So, in the meantime, those uh, 15 Borg cubes have suddenly stopped uh, uh, a few years away. So, they go to investigate, and they're all been destroyed. So, now we, now we have this someone more powerful than the Borg. And uh, I think it was Kim who was all excited, like, hey, look, a new ally who can help us. And, I, it, and Janeway's like, uh, or maybe they're, if they're more powerful than yeah. the Borg, they might not be friendly to us. Yeah. Sorry, Harry. This is the point where I reveal that, once again, you are a young, wet, behind-the-years ensign, and it might turn to shoot you down. Yep. After <laughs> three years as a young, wet, behind-the-years ensign. 
Yes, you know. poor Harry. Uh, so they they find out that there's a this ship or something organic technology attached to the remains of one of these cubes where there's an atmosphere inexplicably inside still. So Harry, Chakotay, Harry, and Tuvok beam over to the damaged Borg ship. They want to get a closer mm-hmm. look at the aliens who are on board there, and they find the pile of Borg potty pots. Specifically, they, they want to get a close-up scan of the bioship right, that's, right. that's attached to the Borg because their scanners aren't working on it for convenience reasons. Right. But yeah, they they find the pile of dead Borg from that H.R. Geiger painted for them, and uh, and Harry said, "Didn't Kess say we were all going to die?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Maybe Tuvok said she did, but I didn't see it." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so th- this pile of par- body parts. I mean, is this evidence of a, like eight four seven two is not just merely uh, uh, you know clinically destroying things, but this is emotion. This is hate, anger, of some sort. Well, they, they keep talking about hate and the strong will survive and things like that. That guest keeps having these feelings of hatred and evil right. and stuff like that. So that's kind of why I call them like the, the Daleks of Star Trek in, in that sense. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the Borg weren't about hate. They were, that was made them, what made them scary. They were just implacably emotionless. They were, they're the Cybermen mm-hmm. of Star Trek in that yeah. sense. Whereas the 8472 really feels more malevolent. They're intensely xenophobic, and they're the only thing they know of in their pocket universe that's intelligent. Right. right. And so finding other intelligences makes them angry. So uh, they so come they talking come aboard. About, oh, okay. Talking about this bioship. Yes, mm-hmm. I was going to mention that. I've seen better bioships. Mm-hmm. On Doctor Who, we had the awesome low-budget 70s Zygon bioship in Doctor mm-hmm. Who and the Loch Ness Monsters. Mm-hmm. Also, back in the early 70s, we had the Claws of Axis bioship yep. from the third Doctor's time. And both of those had much more interesting bio-designs to the technology than what we've got here, which is basically flat walls with some what look like maybe blood vessels painted on them. Right. Yeah, they didn't do a very... I- I can't imagine if they ever convert this to to uh, to uh, 4K, how bad bad that set will look. Uh, mm. Yeah, there was a lot more they could have done with it, and it was kind of they didn't spend a lot of time. But they uh, they go aboard and they're they're attacked by the alien. Eventually, it comes back, and Harry gets injured, and then the alien shoots at Voyager, but somehow Voyager doesn't get a scratch on it, but from this weapon that can destroy Borg cubes with a single shot. It was only a glancing um, blow, I guess. <laughs> I guess. And uh, Janeway orders Paris to get them out of there at maximum warp. Yes. Yeah. So they, they get away. Also, I like how uh, when they're trying to beam them back and they're having problems because, again, reasons, mm-hmm. Balana says she's going to get a skeletal lock on them. And Janeway says, a what? And Balana says, oh, I just made it up. I'm going to try to lock onto the trace minerals in their bone tissue. and i'm going and i hope you're going to broaden the field once you've done that because otherwise you're going to get back a bunch of trace minerals (laughs) or just their skeletons and nothing else (laughs) oops (laughs) they don't need those anymore right yeah yeah yeah. oh there's a nice gross pile sitting on that board cube but once once they get them all back and they they take harry to sick bay and his face is being taken over by some really menacing looking low mane (laughs) <laughs> and and the doctor reveals that that this is a, an infection of the spe- we don't yet know what they're called but species eight four seven two cells 
they're not transforming Harry, and he's conscious, by the way. He cannot be sedated. Yep. He's, they're actually eating him from the inside out. So this is actually a case, instead of a man eating lo mein, this is lo mein eating a man <laughs> while he's conscious and can't be sedated. And the doctor says that he, he shows us animations of the cells of species 8472, and they look bigger than human red blood cells. Mm-hmm. And he tells us they have 100 times more DNA than humans do. It's the most densely coded thing he's ever seen. And I'm going, wow, apparently the amoeba species amoeba dubious is extinct by the 24th century because <laughs> we've got it here on Earth, and it has 231 times the DNA of a human <laughs> oh, being. It's, it's more than twice as densely coded as species 8472. Calling Andre Bormanis, where was your <laughs> <Yep>. scientific <laughs> consultancy on this episode? <laughs> Andre Bormanis was the science consultant on Star Trek for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, the, um, the, the doctor is using modified Borg nanoprobes to fight the infection. He's modified them, which apparently the Borg hasn't figured out how to do. And he says it'll and, take days and, to make enough. And, and they try to explain that by saying the way the Borg think, they don't really invent, they assimilate. and. Mm-hmm. They haven't been able to assimilate this, so they don't know how to adapt their own stuff. But because we think in a different way than the Borg, we figure out solutions rather than just yeah. assimilate ideas we need. Right. That yes. we could come up with this. And that's, yeah, I don't really buy that, but it's a good attempt. Sure. By the Reasonable way, Garrett enough. Wang, who plays Harry Kim, uh, his reaction to this episode was, oh, great, another episode where Harry gets to lay on a bio bed for half the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Which is. <laughs> Which is essentially, uh, I don't know if this is a commentary on Garrett Wang's acting from the producers or not, but <laughs> he seems to do this a lot in the series. Hey, uh, in, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the guy who played Michael Garibaldi. Um, D- uh, Doyle. Jerry uh, Doyle, yeah. Jerry Doyle. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Doyle was at once asked what his favorite episode of Babylon 5 was, and he said, the one where I was unconscious and got full pay for laying on a sickbed and not having to do any action. <laughs> you, get, you get paid either way, Harry. Uh, so uh, so Cass has said, now reveals that she's been uh, in telepathic connection of some sort with these aliens, the A472 aliens, for some time. She just hadn't realized it was them, and it was trying to communicate with her, The and it was saying, the weak will perish. So that's we, their malevolence there. So he's being leave the species eight four seven two has been leaving threatening messages on her headphone. Yep. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he's stalking her. So uh, th- and then they come to find out that the reason the Northwest Passage that they've so called is clear of Borg activity is because this giant region of space is apparently chock full of what billions of eight four seven two ships coming through a singularity yeah. from another dimension. Well, Northwest uh, is passage forbidden. <laughs> yeah, Northwest is passage forbidden. <laughs> and uh, so Janeway uh, has the decision to make now that they can't use this Northwest passage to go to get to where they want to go. She she can't sleep. So she goes to because Chakotay told her to sleep on it, remember? But she can't sleep. So she goes to talk to Leonardo on the holodeck. Uh, Leonardo suggests Janeway turn to prayer to God for her mm-hmm. answer. But that gives her the idea instead. Maybe she, what she needs to do is to make a deal with the devil, um, which I think I prayer would not be a bad idea. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I would have taken him up on the prayer thing. Yeah, that would probably be better. <laughs> but we've got these secular Hollywood writers, so. Right. We want to. We kind of want to uh, gently mock 
the you know Leonardo's faith of that medieval idea. Um, so the, what she's come up with is she wants to trade the doctor's uh, discovery on how to defeat eight four seven two to the Borg in exchange for safe passage. And she, then she, and then you say, oh well, want they just assimilate Voyager to get the information? Nope. The only the doctor has the information in his matrix, not in the computer. Mm-hmm. Because that's how things work, apparently. And, no, no, they they tell him to transfer it all into right. him into his like right. hollow emitter, so it right. will be off the computer. And they imply there's a process here that like Kess has to help him with to get mm-hmm. it out of the computer and into the hollow emitter. Right. Well, because a program can only exist in one place. <laughs> mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, that's just one of the things they've done with with it. But yes, at this point, he has a hollow emitter, and so if the Borg try to assimilate, the hollow emitter is to be destroyed immediately. And and this is actually a pretty pretty well thought out plan. Yes, and there are some additional aspects to it as well. There they also uh, it also makes sense, and I don't think they explore this as much as they should. But they they need to stop species eight four seven two as well, mm-hmm. because if 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 it's stronger than the Borg and it hates all life in our galaxy, I mean like control and discovery. Mm-hmm. Then it, once it kicks the Borg's butts, it's going to come after everybody else, right, and right. so uh, so we you know Voyager has an incentive to help the Borg in this because it indirectly helps the rest of us. Right, the enemy of my enemy is my friend but, in in, the, in this sense. Yes, but the only question is if the Borg are able to assimilate eight four seven two, then you have real problems. Right. Although that's the thing is they they apparently can't. They're they're so right. alien that they are unable. And so, to, but yes. so the doctors the doctors' modifications are to destroy the alien cells, not assimilate right. them. Yes. Uh, this is where Chakotay tells the uh, Scorpion parable, uh, and he gets now he he's, whereas before he was all like I'm behind you 100. percent Whatever you do, Captain. Now he suddenly I think you're wrong. I'm I'm willing to obey your orders, but uh, I think you're letting the ends justify the means. Allowing the evil of assimilation of species eight four seven two in order to let us get home. Although, so yeah, right there, and, he and, thinks it's assimilation. I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. he does, and he says it's wrong to help them assimilate eight four seven two, and so it's like, yeah, if it was any other species, we would certainly say it's wrong to help the Borg assimilate them. Chakotay's got a nice point here. Yeah. Yes. On the other hand, they want to wipe out all life in the galaxy, so. It is a conundrum. Uh, He also tells her bluntly, I think your desire to get this crew home is blinding you to other options, although he doesn't name any. (laughs) And then Janeway kind of says, well, then I guess I'm alone after all, despite all of your protestations of having my back earlier. And she's being a little unfair because he Mm -hmm. does say he'll support her decision. She, she, he didn't promise her he was going to agree with everything she decides, just that he'll support it. Right, yeah, she gets kind of misty-eyed as she says, "I guess I'm all alone after all." Uh, well, still I mean, the the Chakotay Janeway scenes are the best ones in this. Yes, yes. I mean, the, it, well, I mean, it kind of reveals the whole like the captain's chair is the loneliest place on the ship. That sort of thing that you know was the captain is has to make decisions that sometimes it's nobody else wants her to make, but that's her job. Right, right. Uh, so they go to a Borg planet, which I think is a little fascinating. It's a little bit uh, like Cybertronish. Uh, thinking mm-hmm. about that there are whole planets full of Borg, and they want to negotiate with the Borg. And Janeway is beamed over to the cube. Uh, uh, she, that wasn't part of the plan, but apparently that's what she's got to do. 
they said filming that was interesting because we what we see is her in this big open space surround you know where this Borg that far looks away. Fake. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas she's when she's filming it, she's in this. Apparently, she was in this small space. It's a green screen room. Yep. And so, in order to kind of get motivation, she's like, uh, "The way I thought about it was, is what would it be like to be in a room uh, or that w- with dark, surrounded by serial killers?" So that's how she, mm. uh, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of got the motivation for that scene, which I think is was pretty good. So the uh, species eight four seven two then in the middle of all this shows up and then Death Stars the planet. And the cube takes off with Janeway aboard and Voyager in tow. And that's where we end the episode. And we have lots of fireworks to end on. Yes, yes. See, now the Empire should have used that model for the Death Star instead of the big giant artificial moon. You know, just <laughs> yeah. like a bunch of, you know, get a bunch of Death Star Destroyers together and blast a central hub. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and that, so that was the season finale, which would have been an interesting way to end the season. Uh, you know, as I recall, it was an interesting way to end the season and and wait for it. Wait, I've got to wait till the fall to find out what happens yeah. or whatever it was. Uh, well, at least this time it wasn't a whole year like it is now. I know, I know, or longer. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so and that's so that's how it ends. Uh, any any thoughts about uh, the ending or the the episode? Last notes on that, Father Corey. Well, you know, as you mentioned, it was kind of a setup for season four, and, and it works well as far as that's concerned. It, it, it's definitely not my favorite Voyager episode, but it, it's not a bad episode. Uh, although you guys kept saying it wrong. It wasn't a bio ship. It was some kind, sort of ship, or some kind <laughs> some, of ship. There were some sort of bio readings. There was some kind of parallel universe. You got to say it right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I even noticed there was a trailing usage of that. It was an X of some kind at one point. Yeah, it was the ship of some kind, I think, was the one that they did it that way. Now, you know what? Because of our discussions here on this, on this show, every time any TV show ever uses some kind of, I'm like, oh, I'm noticing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I find myself making sure I don't say, you know, oh, I use some kind of knife to do that. No, I mean, I used a knife to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, then, known uh, as, just, that, that's known as the Bader-Meinhof effect, by the way, where yeah. after you become conscious of something, you start seeing it all over the place. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> right. buy, you buy a car of a certain kind, and all of a sudden, everybody has that same exact car. You know, that's yes, red cars. Uh, and then when the, the, uh, when the way team goes on the, the what's left of the cube, there's that Borg that's flying around. It almost looked like it was animatronic. It, there, I, don't, I would be surprised if that was actually a human being doing that, because that was... Flailing, flailing around pretty good. Oh, okay. Oh, flailing. Yeah, yeah, flailing. yeah. That was. Yeah. yeah, that was true. That's true. Jimmy, uh, I thought it was much more enjoyable than many Voyager episodes I've seen. But the <laughs> Chakotay and Janeway scenes were the best. Yes, although the, 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 I got to put uh, the Leonardo, uh, Leonardo up there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that's true. I agree. Uh, all right, so let's take a moment before we finish up to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including. Susan D, Dominic S, Callistus M, Kiana C, and Andreas S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. Now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter. When you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor, to support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. So that's it from us. What did you think of this 
episode of Star Trek Voyager, The Scorpion, you can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Enterprise episode, Dear Doctor, which is not as bad as Night in Sick Bay, but <laughs> until then, Father Corey Stiga, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. I always try to use greetings that are used by the species on the show that, and, and it varies <laughs> by the species we've just encountered. So thank you, Dom. Live long and prosper. The weak will perish, and resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. <laughs> Apparently so. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, in their collective state, the Borg are utterly without mercy, driven by one will alone, the will to conquer. They are beyond redemption, beyond reason.